Thank you, Josh, for lifting us up in reminder of what a great God we serve and that we have the privilege of helping people find the Lord. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for meeting our great needs, forgiving our sins, speaking peace to our hearts. Thank you for the abundant provision around us, evidenced in fertile and fruitful lands that will be planted soon and meet more than our needs. I pray, Lord, today that you would speak especially to the needs of our heart. May our lives be yours. May we be listening. Now, Lord, anoint us and teach us and transform us in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bibles, open them to our scripture reading. John chapter 5. If you read the Gospel of John, you will see many places where Jesus chooses his most controversial actions in the midst of very large crowds. When he does this, it's not because he wants to grandstand or draw the wrong kind of attention to himself. It's because there's something that everybody needs to notice. And this morning, as we are barely into the book of John, John chapter 5, we find Jesus again in a situation where something needs fixed in the social society of the church. Now, this is not a sermon primarily about the Sabbath. But it is a sermon that touches on the healing power of God, not only for the individual, but for the encounter that we can have with the Creator and the Redeemer. In this situation, we find that while everybody was outwardly compliant in the age of Christ, and while the restrictions and the power of the religious elite was almost complete, the Sabbath, instead of being a blessing, had become a curse with all the added requirements of the Jews and Jesus wished to rid it of these encumbrances and leave it standing upon its own holy dignity so before we look at the man that was sick for most of his adult life we need to see the systemic and the institutional sickness that had played in to the experience of a nation that was set aside to be a light a city set on a hill a trumpeting voice of hope they were no longer such. They were self-focused. They were self-conscious that they should sin. And they were impotent in impacting the lives of the broken and proclaiming hope to the lost. Before there's anything to be seen about an individual, there is an element of evil intrigue that has sought to make an encounter with God the worst thing that could ever happen to you. Satan understands the transforming power of a living relationship with God, so he turned the Sabbath into something that was unbearable. 
Against the backdrop of this amazing deliverance for an individual and through the power of physical healing, Jesus is going to liberate the Sabbath to be a day that is anchored in the character, the beautiful, relieving, and delivering power of God. John chapter 5, verse 1. After these things, there was a feast of the Jews. Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which in the Hebrew is called Bethesda, having five porches. In these lay a multitude of those who were sick and blind, lame and withered, waiting for the moving of the waters. For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water. And whoever then first, after the stirring up of the water, stepped in was made well from whatever disease from which he was afflicted. I want you to walk into that portico and sense the smell of soiled clothes and hear the sounds of human suffering. It is not a place that you want to be. And Jesus had the power to deliver them all, but this would get in the way of broader deliverance. And so Jesus picks out the worst one, verse 5. A man who had been ill for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had been there a long time in that condition, he said to him, do you want to get well? One writer states that his persistent efforts towards his object, which had failed, by the way, and the doubt and the anxiety of his mind were fast wearing away the poor remnant of his strength. What would you be worried about if you were laying there by the side of the pool for almost four decades? What would you be thinking about? Well, we know from the latter part of the story, if you'll flip the page over, perhaps at least go to verse 14. We know from the latter part of the story that there's some A to B correlation about his current plight and his previous actions. After the man is healed, Jesus finds him in the temple and says to him, Behold, you become well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. In John chapter 9, they asked Jesus about a man born blind who sinned, him or his father. And Jesus says, that's not how it works. But in this story, there is some relationship to the man's actions as a youth and his impotence as an adult. It's likely that in the rebellious moments of his early years as he was flaunting the laws that prohibit immorality that he contracted some kind of disease which slowly took away his hope his happiness and then his mobility and he's laying there alongside of a porch with lots of other people who haven't been bathed and haven't been cared for very well he's been wasting his days away looking for that final moment when he might claw and scratch his way into the rippling waters but he never quite makes it and the anxiety and the doubt that's in his mind is that in regard to the elements of where he stands with God in that society it was common to directly consider God's stroke as the result or the cause, I should say, of your suffering. It was a punitive God, a God who was looking to make you pay for what you did what was wrong and reward you for what you did was right. Unfortunately, in the mix of all this, the image of God had been twisted and people no longer saw him as someone you could love. Somewhat akin to the modern doctrine of a God that would burn you forever for not receiving his invitation of supposed grace. 
Satan has plied the waters of theological understanding, tacking this way and that way, depending on which way the winds change in society. But Satan has never left off trying to smear the person in the image of God. And in this situation, there's a balance to be struck. It's not God that's in heaven doling out disease as punishment, but there are things that we do in which there is somewhat of a relationship, a cause and effect factor. In this situation, we find a Jesus approaching a man who has brought the disease on largely himself, knowing everything about him, and he's going to pick him out as an expose of his goodness and grace. In John chapter 4, Jesus, talking with the woman at the well, asked her to go get her husband. She says she doesn't have one. And Jesus says, I know, you've had five. And the one you're with now is not your husband. Jesus knows the intimate details of all the people's lives he's dealing with, which is what makes this deliverance so important, because he dug his own hole. He created his own trauma. He's laying there in doubt and anxiety because he's at least somewhat aware of this. He knows he made this problem. Jesus knows he made this problem. Jesus approaches him and is offering him out of the kindness of heaven's heart, the very nature of who God is. He's asking him without a statement of faith or a confession of forgiveness if he would like to be different. This is an amazing thing for it's a... a, small word picture. It's a short story. It's a synopsis of who God is and how He works. Salvation is not something you earn. It's a gift given to you. And the result is to be an ensuing, ideally, desire to give oneself away to the one who gave Himself for you. Yes, Jesus understood why the man was there. Jesus would even warn the man to not return to his previous ways. But all of that is post-deliverance dialogue. In the moment, all Jesus wants to know is if there could be some redemption for the rest of his adult life. Now, there are people listening to me right now that aren't even 38 years old. And there are people listening to me right now that 38 years old is half of the time they've been alive, and for others, some greater or lesser fraction thereof. But if you could imagine for four decades living in one spot in the perpetual discouragement and the depression that would ensue and finally the dawn of of I, I would hate to call it intelligence but the final coming to grips with the fact that this probably is never gonna work until Jesus appears bending over you asking you if you'd like to get well He hasn't given up on getting well. He tries to get to the pool when the water is stirred, but he's never yet succeeded. And Jesus, without skipping a beat, speaks to him and says, get up, take up your bed, and go that way. And while the man obeys, he stands up, new life coursing through his nerves, New power rushing through his muscles. He turns to bend over to get his bed and Jesus disappears into the crowd. This creates a wonderful deliverance and a new set of problems for the man who's been directed by a deliverer who has the power over disease has said, you need to take that bed and walk. And he does. And as he makes his way out of the sounds and the, and the olfactory trauma of the pool of Bethesda, he comes upon a Pharisee and he stops to communicate his deliverance. Verse 10, the Jews were saying, 
to the man who was cured, it's the Sabbath and it's not permissible for you to carry your pallet. But he answered to him and he said, he who made me well was the one who said to me, pick up your pallet and walk. And they asked him, who is the man who said to you, pick up your pallet and walk? But the man who was healed by him did not know for it was Jesus. He had slipped away while there was a crowd in that place. The man probably wasn't sure he'd recognize him if he could see him. It appears to be more voice recognition than anything else. And yet Jesus in verse 14 interjects himself back into the man's life. No introduction, just a warning. Now I want you to understand something. Warnings are gospel messages at times. In this case, Jesus has just delivered most of an adult life from the misery of despair in his agedness. And Jesus says very little to him except to affirm that he understands his journey to wellness. Behold, you've become well. Do not sin anymore that nothing worse happens to you. It appears in two very short sentences that Jesus both resurrects him from perpetual despair and physical misery and then warns him how to walk in a new life. We're living in an age where we want the one, but we scorn the other. But I assure you today, friends, Jesus has the power to take you out of whatever dark place you've walked into, whatever hole you've dug, whatever trauma you've brought upon yourself. He has that power. But in the backside of his deliverance, he doesn't fail to be the heavenly parent who says, track this way, don't go back there. Wherever you might be on this Easter weekend, I want you to know that God, in full understanding of all the details of your motivations and your actions, offers me and you the same offering of complete restoration that He offered the man at the pool of Bethesda. We don't deserve it. We're not worthy of it. We have created a number of our own challenges. But Jesus doesn't hold that in front of us. He offers instead something better. He slips away from the man and the man quickly finds the religious elite and explains to them that it was Jesus. They already knew, I'm sure, that it was Jesus. Nobody else had that kind of pedigree around town, around Jerusalem. And so now the Jews determine that it's time to hold Jesus accountable for his actions. And they begin a dialogue there in the temple courts with the masses watching. They were furious that he was undermining their religious authority. Many of the laws that surrounded the Sabbath were of their own concoction, not the principles or precepts of the Word. For this reason, verse 18, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but he was also calling God his Father, making himself equal with God. Now this is where the whole tenor changes. And I want you to understand what's happening here. Jesus is healing the brokenness. This is a problem. Jesus is teaching lawlessness. Carry your bed. Jesus is about to claim equalness with the Father. And Jesus is in the process of proclaiming deliverance for the entire human race. We're about to see a distinct shift in the way the dialogue goes on. From being the accused, Jesus is going to move into the seat of authority higher than Moses' seat. Verse 19, Jesus answered and was saying to them, Truly, truly, I say unto you, the Son can do nothing himself 
unless it's something he sees his father doing. For whatever the father does, these things the son also does in like manner. For the father loves the son and shows him all things that he himself is doing, and the father will show him greater works than these, so that he will marvel. For just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the son also gives life to whom he wishes. For not even the father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the son so that all who honor the Son, even as they honor the Father, will honor the Son as they honor the Father. And he who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly I say unto you, he who hears my words and believes them, him in who has sent me, he has eternal life. And he does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. Jesus has gone from being a rule breaker and a teacher of rule breaking to where he is elevating himself to equality with the Father, and then above that, he's moving himself beyond the Father as the judge, the vindicator of the human race. Jesus has been delivered to the role of the one who decides the destiny and the eternity of man. Again, verse 22, For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son. It's important for us to see here that Jesus is not content to be on the wrong end of a wrong interpretation of the law. He wants his children to be in a right relationship with the lawgiver. Now, for some who keep the 24 hours of the Sabbath sacred as the commandment directs, The primary emphasis of what they do is not doing. The commandment says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work. Thou, nor thy son, nor thy daughter, nor thy maidservant, nor thy manservant, nor thy cattle, nor the stranger that is within thy gates. Somehow it's as if it's read completely out of context. Somehow it's read as if there is no thinking as to what the rest is from and to what the rest is in. It was impossible in the days of Jesus to rest in the Father for His image had been so twisted that no matter where you went and no matter how much silence was in your life, there was always this same anxious doubt that was in the mind of the sufferer for almost four decades. Are my sins forgiven? Am I good enough? This kind of restlessness is in direct contradiction to the invited rest of the Sabbath. Our rest is not in non-activity. Our rest is in the relationship with God. And in this day and age in which Jesus is telling the story, there are all these layers of religious restrictions which turn the Sabbath into a curse. And what was wrong with turning the Sabbath into a curse is that the relationship with God is cursed. A day in which you can do nothing is think about except think about the nothingness of what's going on and the lack of assurance that you have in regards to the religion that you're surrounded by. But I want to ask you something. Did Jesus cease all work on the seventh day? The Bible tells us in John chapter 1 that in the beginning was the Word. 
and that nothing was made without the Word. Jesus is the active agent of the Godhead for creation. And when He makes this world, what I want to know is, did Jesus stop working on the seventh day or did He simply stop creating? I want you to think about this. There is a work of redeeming that follows the fall of sin. It happens seven days a week. There is a work of relieving which Jesus is doing in John chapter 5. It happens seven days a week. There is a work of retaining the order of the universe that goes on seven days a week. The flowers that are growing don't take a break today. The sun that is shining hasn't shut down. It's generating light processing. The stars that will shine last night, that shined last night and will shine tonight, they don't quit moving in perfect order. There is someone maintaining all of this in the universe, but somehow religion had found itself reduced to the componentry of actually squeezing the beauty of God out of the moment to encounter Him. I want us to think about that today. We're living in a day and in an age in which the devil, like I said, using the analogy of a sailboat, he changes his tack as the wind changes. We're not living in a religious day anymore. This is not a religious era, not by merit of the scriptures. This is a secular era. The signs of secularness are around us everywhere. So the question that ought to come to our minds is, is the devil somehow looking to drive a wedge between God and man once again, just in a different way? And the answer is categorically, yes. How is he doing it? You have never lived in an age where you could write the menu of your life better than today. I just talked with someone recently who was indirectly dealing with a young person who didn't want to come out of the basement away from their den where they could orchestrate their virtual encounter with all the dynamics of an electronic life it's not just that a wedge is being driven between God and humanity by this extreme indulgence in self it's that there's a wedge that's actually being driven between people entire generations to where the effort that it takes to form a relationship or maintain a relationship or deliver a relationship from the traumas of making the life journey together it's not worth it I was in Africa a few weeks ago and on Sabbath I spoke for the Sabbath school then for the church then a question and answer session and then an evening vespers and in the question and answer session something about our interface with the modern electronic world came up and I, it'll remain a very distinct memory for me in the course of answering the question I hate to say this to all the young men and some not so young men in this room but uh, in the course of the conversation I said you know these were all teenage men I said you know guys if you want to grow up and become real men give up the video games and engage in I don't know what I said something like real life and all of the girls in the room broke into spontaneous clapping 
I was stunned. I had an encounter with a collegiate in our community not long ago, and they told me, they said that about two months ago, they quit playing video games, they got Netflix off their phone, and they got the YouTube video gone, the app, and then they went on to tell me, should I be surprised, they went on to tell me about an encounter with God in the night when they couldn't sleep. They woke, they couldn't go to sleep, they go to sleep so easy. And they couldn't go to sleep and something was on their mind and they just couldn't find rest and they decided they would get up and pray. This is one of our young adults. And they said, Lord, if I've heard you right, when I'm done praying and I lay my head down on this pillow, I'd like to go to sleep right away. And they said, bang, I was gone. You see, the devil has simply changed tack. What he could do in an age of religious overreach, he's now doing in an age of secular inreach into our lives. And it's going to be up to us to say, have I done anything to burden the day? Have I chosen my own willful self-indulgence in absence of human relationships without any accountability about how it's affecting me? Jesus was not willing that a commandment that was set aside to create opportunity to know God should be twisted and misformed to where someone could not come alive in the deliverance of a friendship, of a saving relationship. Why would God command a sacred 24 hours? Doesn't that seem a little bit contradictory to the idea of being so attractive that to know him is to love him maybe it has something to do with the fact that if you never get to know him you might not ever love him and so perhaps he understands that placing you in a situation in which you distinctly separate yourself from the necessities of the other six days of the week and all the worldly entertainments of the weekend Maybe what God is saying, if you give me some space, if you deny yourself focusing on this little terrestrial ball and its intrigues and its delights, if you could stop for a little while and actually go through the discipline of disconnecting on that so you could connect with, with me, maybe we might have a friendship. I had somebody after the first service talk to me in the basement downstairs and they said, you know, Pastor, because I described in that sermon, I described somebody that I, I met who really rubbed me the wrong way. But I was stuck working with him and after a period of weeks and months he became what I would call one of my better friends. When you have to go from one side of a relational river to another, and the only way to get across is to cross the bridge, you don't want to go too far out on that bridge because you might get stuck going all the way. They might see you coming and come out to meet you. Oh, I'll try going to that religious meeting once. Oh, I'll try out that Sabbath school once. You see, the devil knows. 
It's no longer religious institutionalism that he'll use to smear our desire to know God. It's now an overindulgence. It's a capitalistically afforded opportunistic hour for Satan to dangle out in front of all of us all of the distractions that will work to do the same thing. I don't want to be stuck with God. If there's one thing I don't want is I don't want to be stuck with God. Have you ever been stuck with someone you don't want to be with? It's not right. But most of us have. They're called parents. You go through that phase of life. It seems that it, it strikes more in the high school years. But you go through that phase of life where your dad doesn't look like he looked when he married your mom. They don't dress with the latest fashions. They've sacrificed a lot of their money to take care of you so they're not driving the nicest cars and they may not even be living in the nicest home and you're kind of embarrassed of them. I wish it wasn't so. We changed their diapers, we cleaned up their vomit, we paid for their Christian education. And yet there's this strange thing about humanity is that we come into this moment of self-doubt when we don't know ourselves and we kind of think the one thing we don't ever want to grow up to be is just like them. And so what we want is what's flashing across our computer screens and on our phones. What we want is what used to be painted on the slick pages of the magazines What we want is to grow up to be what the world says is cool, all the while not recognizing that true greatness resides in the sacrifices of the ones who have focused their lives on getting us to a healthy, happy adulthood. It's a tragedy. It's worse now than it's ever been because you cannot escape the attention of the world unless you make some very decided decisions. But nonetheless, the result is all still the same. It's like, yeah, I don't don't want to be with him. We calibrate our interest in such a way that godliness and holiness looks much less palatable, much less desirable until we make a decision to break with it. And then all of a sudden, that which once looked not so admirable and respectable, all of a sudden comes to be seen as truly great. I want to tell you, what your parents look like when you're 16 versus what they look like when you're 46 is a colossal night and day picture between success and worthiness of emulation and failure and great distance of person and persona. Satan knows that if he can pull it off, he'll wipe out the window for getting to know God, which is the great need of the human race and grows into the great desire of the ages and of nations. Yes, Jesus was not embarrassed of the Father, even though it made him persona non grata with the religious institutional powers of the day. And Jesus will go from not only breaking the laws of the Sabbath and then teaching him to break the laws of the Sabbath, he will not only go to calling himself equal with the Father, Jesus will go to being elevated as the one and only judge of the entire human race. This is an amazing progression from the accused lawbreaker to the judge 
of the universe for all time and eternity. But Jesus is not willing to stand by and watch the human race be taught exactly what God is not. There's some very sober messages in John chapter 5. I cannot finish the message without noting just a few of them. Verse 25. Truly, truly, I say unto you, an hour is coming and now is. So what Jesus is saying is some people are making decisions right now. The hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. The widow of Nain, Lazarus in John chapter 11. Lest you be left without the evidence that the voice you're hearing in the humble peasant from Galilee is truly God, I'm going to give you the evidence. But the Bible, this gospel especially, says that light came into the world and the darkness could not perceive it. How do you do that? If we were sitting in a dark place, as a boy I used to take very limited vacations for a variety of reasons which I won't go into, but we went about an hour away Hannibal, Missouri. The one thing I've done more than once is walk into the Mark Twain cave and when you got deep down into the bowels, they turned out the lights and it was very, very dark. Couldn't see your hand. But it was not hard when they turned on the lights to recognize the status difference in the environment. But the truth is, is that in religious realms, take the Pharisees and the Sadducees as your A1 illustration, people can go from wanting to know the truth to living in darkness all the while standing under the supposed scriptural instrumentality of light. Jesus will say in this chapter, you search the scriptures because in them you think you find eternal life, but they're testifying about me. What Jesus is actually saying is, I've done a good deed. I've raised a man from misery to happiness. And for this, you would like to stone me. They would have stoned him if it wasn't for all the people watching. But he goes farther in this morning and he says, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. You won't listen now? Jesus says, just like he said to the man restored, stop doing what you were doing that got you into that problem. Jesus says, listen, you refuse to listen in life, you will listen in death. Now, this church teaches that when you die, you're dead. That's what we believe these scriptures teach. As a matter of fact, the resurrection is the only way back to life in the scriptures. Verse 26 For as the Father has life in Himself, even so He gave to the Son also to have life in Himself. Here we see a little window on the resurrection morning. Because when the angels stand at the sepulcher and say something like, Son of God, your Father calls you, Jesus takes back His life on His own. As a man, He dies like a man. But as He comes back to life, it is because He has the life in Himself. His life is unborrowed and underived. And when Jesus is resurrected on that Sunday morning, he is waking up on his own initiative and with his own power. Verse 27. And he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. And now we're going to parse 
We're going to separate what that resurrection morning is going to look like. The Bible teaches that when Jesus returns, there's going to be a great resurrection. That's verse 28. Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming in which all who are in the tomb shall hear his voice. If you won't listen to me, Jesus says now, you will listen later. And they will come forth. And here's how it's divided. Those who did good deeds to a resurrection of life. Don't confuse this with earning your salvation. It's just the way your life exposes itself. And those who committed evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. That's not really the subject matter of the morning, but I will tell you what the book of Revelation teaches. It teaches that between the coming of Jesus, which is the resurrection of hope and life, and the coming of the resurrection of judgment is a thousand years in which all Christians have the opportunity to see why those who weren't saved aren't saved. I mean, this chapter is replete with an invitation to mercy. Let me ask you, would you love the living, merciful, redeeming, relieving Savior to bend over your form and say, would you like something better? Would you like to be well? He puts his face into the wind and he bears the pain of societal scorn and lifts the privilege of knowing God out of the depths of despair and degradation that religious society has taken it down into. And in our day, it is secular society. It is an abandonment of the collective conscience of the churches of America that has allowed us to end up where we're at to where we need a simple resurrection of civility and togetherness and love and energy to form relationships. And of course, above and beyond all that, the privilege and desire of knowing God. <laughs> so let me ask you at the end of this message, how is it? How is it? Look there again, would you? Verse 24. How does this happen? Truly, truly, I say unto you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has what does he have? eternal life how does this happen? and he does not come into judgment but he passes out of death I guess that's where you're living until you have Jesus he passes out of death and into life I want you to think in your mind right now how? does that happen? Why does that happen? And has that happened for you and for me? Here's how it happens. I want you to, I want you to go to that Thursday night in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus has carried the burden of the world. He sought to redeem the nation of Israel. He has sought to collect His people, but so many of them have been led astray by proud, arrogant, evil men who take the name of pastor. He's got 12 men who aren't really converted yet and one 
who got mad at him the last time they ate together on a Sabbath afternoon and went off to betray him for 30 pieces of silver. He takes all of that into the upper room where none of them will wash his feet, but he will wash theirs. They will sing a hymn and go out and he will pray by himself because nobody can stay awake long enough to carry any of his burdens while he's carrying all the burdens of the world pre-Christ, post-Christ, and present Christ for you and me. He agonizes in prayer for an hour and nobody can keep their eyes open for a minute or two. And he comes and he wakes them and asks them again. And it happens again. And it happens again. Great drops of blood flow out of his pores. Jesus is suffering the death of separation from his father in the garden. And after praying for deliverance and accepting the plan of the father, because the scriptures even in John 5 say, Jesus can only do what his father shows him. He gives his life over as the supreme sacrifice men. He falls to the ground dying and the angels come to sustain him and he gets up and he walks into the words of the betrayer and hugs Judas and whispers in his ears as they share a kiss. You're not betraying me with a kiss, are you Judas? It was one last invitation to turn aside. Peter pulls out his sword and thinks to solve this thing with human power. He aims for the head, only gets an ear and is rebuked by Jesus and then they all flee away, every single one. He goes from one kangaroo court to another judged illegally by his own people in the dark night of man's deepest woe. He is scooted off to Pilate, sent over to Herod, brought back to Pilate Finally, nobody has enough backbone to say something's wrong here and Jesus goes to a cross and dies. And hanging there through the morning hours, he comes up to the noon hour and darkness settles about the cross. He is hidden in the shroud of the Father's presence. But towards the end of those hours, he cries out about his forsakenness. How do we go from being the man metaphorically with a wasted life to being delivered and given eternal life and taken out of the judgment bar dock of eternity's judgment? How does that happen? Jesus walk that lonesome valley for me. He took my judgment into the heart of the human race's woe, into the center where there was to be light, there was darkness, where there should have been deliverance, there was degradation. And Jesus carries my sin I'm the man, 38 years, sick, sinful, despairing, being worn down by anxiety and doubt. Jesus is my deliverer, accursed and accused by the society of his day and by the modern society we're living in. But Jesus puts his face into the wind for the sake of those that will hear his voice. And it is his suffering. It is my judgment on him that moves me over from death to life. I have not come into judgment. 
because Jesus took my guilty judgment to the cross. Amen and hallelujah. Jesus, redeeming, relieving, retaining order in the universe, seeking to save the lost. So I leave you with this thought from the pen of the Apostle Paul. Because the resurrection, Jesus died. The earth shook as its creator surrendered to the punishment of man. The earth shook as Jesus brought to his bosom the guilt of his new brothers and sisters. The natural world could not watch without a witness. And the earth shook again on Sunday morning as Jesus breaks the bonds of death. Now, according to the Apostle Paul, friends, when we, like the man of 38 years, were dead in trespasses and sin, Jesus, evidenced by His power to break the bonds of the literal tomb, can break the shackles of sin and the fear of future death for you and me. And this is this weekend's grand and glorious hope our life we have been moved when we give our heart to Jesus we've got to capture this we're not to live in this doubt in regards to the assurance we have in Christ let him have your whole heart live with a life that's surrendered does that mean you're never going to stumble no read John's epistles 1 2 and 3 find out that we're little children and we will fumble and we will stumble and we will fall but we have an advocate and he's moved us out of the bar of condemnation and into the presence of deliverance the shadow of the cross and the light of his personal being and friendship glory hallelujah We are living in an age of divine opportunity. You know, when the door of probation closes, really what has closed is an opportunity to know God. Jesus said, this is eternal life, that they might know you and the one whom you sent. The good news is God himself. The good news is God in person, in presence, in your life. So should we be surprised that spending time with God 2,000 years ago was no more attractive than it is for some people today who have simply allowed the tentacles, the little root systems of the world, to wrap themselves, the weeds of life, to wrap themselves around the precious plant of gospel truth and choke it out. We need a resurrection. We need the resurrecting power of Jesus to be able to set us free from sin. And this morning, I want to assure you, for the New Testament writers, the resurrection was the proof that there was nothing. If Jesus took your sins to the cross, that meant He broke the power they have over you when you have him inside of you and while you may fight some of these battles on and on don't give up friends
You have a tender pitying Savior. <laughs> He's a God of compassion, even if it cost Him, and it did cost Him. So on this resurrection weekend, <laughs> while this man of John 5 had not died yet, most of his hope had, most of his future had, until Jesus appeared. He's still waiting to appear. Now listen, one last word for all my Seventh-day Adventist friends that are here today. Your Sabbaths are not simply to be not working. <laughs> if you're not a Seventh-day Adventist, this might be a future contemplation for you, but if you're a Seventh-day Adventist listening to me today, your work is the same work that the Father is doing today for you and me. It's the proclamation of redemption. It's the relieving of suffering. It's the retaining of a measure of order. And so I'm appealing to all those that know this journey that if your Sabbaths are simply your crash and recover time from the rest of the week, maybe on the secular side, there's things I'm chasing or idols I'm bowing down to that keep me from being free and resting in Jesus and delighting in His presence to where I could do more and catch up on all the sleep I've sacrificed attempting to take care of myself. The world needs the ministry of compassion on the Sabbath day. How long has it been since on a Sabbath day you have done the work of God? It's good to come to church, but we might resurrect a whole lot more interest in the truths we proclaim if we were working like God works. Now, I'm not calling you to be busy all the time. Let God speak. If there's anything to what He's prompted me to say, apply it as He says. But I am saying this. The way Jesus worked, we should work too. And may God help us to make sure the Sabbath is about more than me. Amen.